All right, hey, what's up, Traders Point family? Good to see you. Good to be back with you. Missed you guys. And uh, man, can, real quickly, can we just um, celebrate and appreciate our campus pastors who just brought such a great word over the last month? Didn't they do an amazing job? Really did. And um, just am really grateful for all of them, as well as our whole staff, and, and not just our staff, but all of our ministry team leaders and those of you that serve around here as difference makers. You know, it's not lost on me the fact that there are people that will never make it up on this platform who are just as responsible, if not more so, for the incredible things that God is doing around here. And so I'm just really, really grateful uh, to be a part of it. And uh, did you know that in the last four weekends, We've had 500 people step up and say, I, I want to serve around here as a difference maker. That's incredible. 500 people in four weeks. And so I just want to thank you if you were one of the 500, because I know that our calendars are already crazy busy. And uh, so if you did that, then that means that you said, you know what, I'm already really, really busy, but I'm going to prioritize this. And I'm really, really grateful that you have. And it's not too late for you to jump into a serving opportunity or to jump into a group. You know, if you look around, uh, you know, the room and you're kind of, man, how do I get connected here? That's it. You, you serve and you get in a group. And when you do that, you build a relationships. And when you build a relationships, you make a big church a whole lot smaller. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the areas that you could serve is in our student ministry. Our youth night kicks off this Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night. We're super, super excited about our midweek youth night. And um, you can serve there. One really small way that you could uh, serve is, uh, you know, uh, today was our new service times. And this is the, the, we've already done two services so far. It's a couple of our campuses. And uh, you kind of look around the room. The reason why we added that third service is because we just are trying to make room for more. And as I kind of look around uh, here, you know, we're going to get full uh, this fall. And so I want to ask you, if, if you're on mission with us, if this is your church home, that you might consider going to an earlier service. This is the 1115. It's not lost on me. You guys ain't coming to the eight. Like I know that, right? Like you guys weren't even awake at eight o'clock. All right. So, so I get that. But uh, if I can get the 930 people to move to eight and for you to move to nine, then we can kind of create some room for more. Yeah, it will be the shortest, cheapest mission trip you've ever gone on. Right. Just you just vacate your seat. So that way we can make room for more in uh, the fall season. I'm just really encouraged about what God is going to do. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four is uh, our passage today. And uh, as you may already know, we're kicking off a new series of messages. We're going to be in for the next five or six weeks or so uh, called Deconstruct, Reconstruct. Uh, this is a series that I have been uh, kicking around, thinking about, praying, planning for, uh, for uh, the better part of a year. And uh, you're going to find out why uh, here in just um, a minute. Um, let me kind of kick things off this way. Uh, several years ago, I jumped on the phone and I was catching up with a friend of mine that I went to Bible college with way back in the late 1900s. And um, this was a guy that you ever had like a friend or somebody you grew up with and they were just good at everything. You know, they, they were just you know, popular and everything they touched just kind of seemed to, seemed to turn to gold. Uh, don't you just get aggravated with those people. Th that was him. And, uh, you know, he was popular on campus, uh, successful, great student. And he was a year older than me. So I really looked up to him and he was the RA on my dorm floor. And uh, this was uh, one of my very first friends in Bible college who had what we called a weekend ministry. Meaning during the week, he was just a lowly Bible college student like the rest of us. And then on the weekend, he would hop on a plane and fly to the northwest part of the country where he was already on staff of a real life church getting paid with real life money. 
And we just thought that was amazing. Like I remember walking into his dorm room uh, often and he'd be on the phone, you know, just looking really serious. And I'd be like, hey man, like let's go to the calf or let's go shoot some hoops. And he'd be like, I can't. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I'm being phoned into an elders meeting right now. And I was like, whoa. Like this is like, he's so important. It's like, I'm gonna go launch water balloons at the girl's dorm, you know, that's that's what I'm gonna do. So um, uh, anyway, when we caught up a few years ago, like I was really looking forward to hearing what all he had accomplished, if he'd accomplished so much in an early age. And so we jump on the phone and I'm like, hey man, like, you know, tell me about life and your family. And what about, what about the ministry? Tell me about the church. And he got kind of quiet on the other end of the line. And then he said these words that really surprised me. He goes, well, I'm not really in the ministry anymore. And he goes, honestly, Aaron, um, I'm just kind of done with church. And it sort of shocked me. And he went on to just kind of tell me about some painful seasons of life that he had been through and some questions that he had and some experiences that he had endured that had led him to this point. Now, his story is not uncommon, unfortunately. In fact, um, just this last week, um, there was an article published in The Atlantic that said here recently, there's been about 40 million Americans that have recently stopped attending church. Now, not all of it has been like uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, stepping off of a cliff. It's been more like a gradual slope down. Like many didn't even realize it was happening. And certainly COVID accelerated all of that. About 40 million Americans uh, that have stopped attending. That's about 12% of the population, which represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history, which is bound to have some sort of ripple effects. Now, um, the term deconstruction has become kind of like this umbrella term that is used to describe a process in which somebody who once used to be a Christian. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about like Christian in name only. I'm not talking about cultural Christians. I'm not talking about somebody who said, you know, I grew up Catholic or Baptist. I'm talking about somebody who at one time or another, they believe that God's, that the Bible is God's word, that that God is creator, that he has a son named Jesus, that Jesus came on our behalf to to pay the price for our sins and reconcile us back to God. And we're saved by grace through faith, that that kind of a Christian. But then they end up um, experiencing maybe some pain or some trials or some abuse or a betrayal of trust or some questions they're just not getting good answers to. And they embark on a quest to dismantle and to abandon the faith. Now, some don't completely walk away from it altogether. Uh, Some just like simply reshape it. And so they say things like, well, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I still love Jesus. I just don't love the church. Or I I still consider myself a very spiritual person. It's just that I think that there's more than one way to view God. Now, as I'm saying all that, like chances are maybe in your own mind, you're making some connections and you're going, man, you know, I, I have a story of my own. Like I know somebody that I grew up with or somebody I was in small group with. Uh, or somebody that actually was really influential in my early days as a Christ follower, and they have deconstructed and walked away from the faith. Maybe you have kids that you raised in church, but now you realize as they are young adults that maybe you didn't raise them in Christ. And there's a difference, you know. And they kind of go off to college and they get confronted with questions and lifestyles they're not prepared for. And they end up deconstructing and walking away from the faith. Maybe this is your story. Maybe right now you're kicking this around 
and uh, you've walked through some pain and some hypocrisy, or maybe there was a former leader that really betrayed your trust, or uh, right now you're just confused and you saw that social media post by somebody who used to be in the ministry. And they've kind of created this really slick, well-worded, perfectly placed pictures of their life of freedom now that they have shaken off the shackles of religion and now inviting you to do the same. And you're like, you know, that sounds pretty inviting. And if that's you, or if you know somebody that's walked through this, this series is for you. Now, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the the topics that cause us or maybe trigger us to deconstruct our faith. Now, let me just say this before we go any further. Um, Deconstruction in and of itself is not always a bad thing. In fact, I would even argue that Jesus himself did a fair amount of deconstruction when he came. Like, so Jesus would come along and he would say things like this. This is a deconstructing statement. He would say, well, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus would say, but I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Uh, One way in which we, uh, another way to think about deconstruction is sort of like a rethinking, a breaking down to build back up. It's kind of like when you're physically out of shape or you're trying to build some muscle, you go to the gym, you break your body down. We don't say it this way, but you deconstruct the muscle so that it will come back stronger and transformed. Uh, This summer when uh, we were traveling uh, through England with our daughter, uh, we visited a number of abbeys, cathedrals, and churches that are centuries old. Like, it's just amazing to walk into some of these facilities. You know, uh, we walked into this um, pub and we were sitting there and we asked the waitress, how long has this been here? She says, since the 1300s. Like, just blew my mind. You know, in America, if something's 10 years old, we tear it down, you know, and and build something else. But but, uh, over there, they got these like cathedrals that have been around for centuries. But one of the things that we notice as we walk through many of them is that many of them right now are being renovated. Like there was a certain section that there was a white sheet hung up or there was some plywood and there was a sign that said, you know, you know kind of excuse the mess, but um, we are renovating this cathedral so that it might be around hundreds of years from now. And I would say in a very similar way, discipleship, our growth as followers of Jesus requires renovation rather than demolition. There's going to be a crisis. There's going to be pain. There's going to be questions that we walk through. And I've certainly walked through it in my own life. But instead of reaching for a sledgehammer, really all we needed was to reach for a paintbrush. So over the course of the next several weekends together, we're just going to take a look at uh, a few of the subjects or the topics that are oftentimes at the center of people deconstructing their faith. So uh, we're going to take a look at the exclusive claims of Jesus. Why is Jesus the only way to God? You know, isn't being a good enough person and sincerely believing whatever you want to believe good enough? Why is this so narrow? And uh, we're going to talk about um, our sexuality. Like, why does God care who I sleep with? Uh, We're going to talk about gender dysphoria and transgender people. We're going to talk about how some Christians throughout church history have used the Bible or the faith to oppress minorities and women. We're going to talk about church hurt and hypocrisy. That's all going to be in this series. You know, just, just a few little softballs. We're just kind of <laughs> lobbing up there, right? It's just going to line that up and just, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I've got to say that in jest, otherwise I'll cry. You know, it's just like, there's, there's, there's some heavy lifting in uh, this uh, series. And now here's what I want to do. I just kind of want to set the tone for this series is that um, by no means am I going to come across as a know-it-all. I hate it when preachers do that. Like, I, I, I don't have the answers to all the questions. Like, it's certainly not an exhaustive list. 
Um, and uh, if I do my job right and I don't get canceled by the end of this series, here's what I, I wanna invite us to do as a church is I want us to just engage with each of these subjects thoughtfully and theologically. As my friend, um, as my friend Preston Sprinkle says, like, hey, we wanna think deeply and we wanna love widely. Uh, now, even as I went through that list, automatically, especially those of you non-confrontational people, like you're already squirming in your seat. And you're just like, oh man, you know, tell me which week you're going to talk about that because I'll just watch online, you know? And it's like, and uh, you're just kind of uncomfortable. And, it's like, and you might even say, well, are we, should we even talk about this in church? And I would just very lovingly respond, we're already talking about it everywhere else. It would be kind of awkward um, for us not to talk about it here. And I would just say that, um, you know, whether you realize it or not, your kids are already hearing about every single one of those subjects via TikTok. And so if we won't intentionally disciple the next generation, somebody else will. Now, uh, each week uh, of this series, each, yeah, go ahead and, you know, this is the last, this is the last, uh, because we've added these other service times, I've been trying to like cut material so that way I met it up. This is the third service. I can keep you guys as long as I want, right? So, 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 so anyway, uh, so uh, each week, what we're going to do is we're just going to release a list of trusted resources for you to do some reading and study on your own. Uh, because there is no way that I could adequately, I mean, these are complicated topics, many of them. There's no way I can adequately cover it in a mere 35 minute message. And so you can take a picture of this QR code behind me and uh, there's just gonna be a list of trusted resources we'll release every single week. So that way you can do some reading on your own. I just wanna invite you to think um, deeply, thoughtfully and theologically uh, through some of these subjects. Now, uh, here's where I wanna start today is uh, I really want to start with the Bible. And I really think that that's foundational to everything else that we're going to talk about. And oftentimes it is one of the things where people begin to ask questions about it. And if there's not good answers to the questions, then it kind of creates some doubt. And then it sort of spirals and uh, they can dismantle or deconstruct their faith and walk away. And this isn't a theoretical for me. Like this is, this is day to day. Like uh, I've been following after Jesus for about uh, you know, 30, 35 years. And I've been in full-time ministry about 25 of those years. And I've had people, these are questions that people have asked me as a pastor. Like if Christianity is based on the Bible, then how can we trust the Bible? Like wasn't the Bible written a really long time ago by privileged people just seeking to consolidate power? And you know, don't people interpret the Bible in wildly different ways to fit whatever agenda they have. And can't you just make the Bible say whatever you want? Why should we trust that? And these are really, really important questions. And it's going to be the foundation to everything else we talk about in this series. And so our passage today is one verse. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And uh, I'm going to read the passage. And this is participatory. All right. The uh, first two earlier services, they were very energetic. So you guys have no excuse. All right. You already had three cups of coffee. All right. So I want to encourage you to, you know, read the passage with me by saying the word that's in bold as I read the passage. All right. So here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is very good. Man, you guys make me so proud. All right. You're better than both of the earlier services. All right. And it is then the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What an interesting way to explain what the Bible is and what it does. Here's what I mean. Uh, I read a lot 
You know, I, I read books on parenting to become a better parent. I read books on leadership to become hopefully a better leader. Uh, this last summer, I read a book on how to be a great golfer and it did not work like at all. But usually I read a book and the reason why I read it, most of it, I don't read very much fiction. I mostly read uh, something to try to gain some nuggets of insight, uh, to gain some wisdom, to gain some knowledge, to apply some things to my life. And then if it's really good, I'll recommend it. And never once have I recommended a really good book to people by saying, man, you've got to read this book. It's alive. If I did, you would think I was so weird. You know, if I was like, man, you've got to read this book. It, it, it's like a sword. It's just going to expose you, you know, but that's how the Bible describes itself. Here's how the Bible is described in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3. Uh, Paul says that the Bible is, it's breathed out or it is God breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What I want you to see there is that the Bible was not written for us to grow in head knowledge. The Bible was not written like um, you read an owner's manual. And I know it sounds like a cute statement, you know, Bible, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. But that's not how the Bible is meant to be read. It's not like a, uh, you know, a bunch of checklists, you check it off, you're like, I got that down. No, the Bible is this living, active, breathing document that is seeking to form us into a brand new person. The Bible also presents a narrative, like a story that we can identify with and that can help us make sense of the world in which we live. Rick Luger, a sports psychologist, says the reason why fans rush the field after their team wins is because they are looking to belong. Like they want to find a place, like a sense of identity, which is why we are drawn into becoming a fan of a team, even if that team doesn't win anything for years. We're like, you know what? Like I'm just identifying with this team. Maybe it's a childhood memory. Maybe I like the colors or the logo or whatever. But really, like when, when our team does win, we win. You know, when, when our team loses, you know, we have other fans to be miserable with. And so we're all looking to identify with someone to help us make sense of our own lives. This goes well beyond the world of sports. In fact, there's a popular book called Story Wars, which says that consumers will buy a product, not necessarily because of what the product is or what it does, but so that they can fit their lives into a narrative or a story. And so marketing professionals are at war with each other to sell the best story. They're not selling a trinket, they're selling a story. And, and Hollywood has picked up on this. Uh, which I was at the movie theater last weekend and I saw, you know, many of you uh, wearing pink, you know, a, no judgment, right? Just an observation. And uh, because, you know, all of us are looking to find ourselves within the midst of a story. And philosophers for centuries from Kierkegaard to Nietzsche have said the same. We're all, here's another word for it, worldview. Like a set of lenses that we look through to interpret and make sense of the world in which we live. Now we contend that the scriptures provide the best story. Now, not set of stories, story in the singular. This would be what I, I would call the, if I could get, I'm going to throw a few nerdy terms out to you. Some of you will love it and some of you, you know, maybe not. But, but here's, the, here's, the, here's the term, meta-narrative. And the meta-narrative is the overarching storyline of the Bible. And when we read the Bible devoid of the meta-narrative, then we don't understand what's going on. This is how you can read some things in the Bible and you're like, I don't understand. That is so offensive. I don't understand that could be in the scriptures. And when you read it divorced from the meta-narrative, 
That's where the conclusion you come to. So here's the thing we come to understand when we understand the overarching narrative of scripture. Not everything in the Bible is prescribed. It's simply being described. And oftentimes when you play it out, you see what happens when people live that way. Not everything in the Bible is being endorsed. It's just simply being explained. So the meta narrative of scripture is creator God who creates, there is a fall, there is the redemption of God, the restoration of all things. That is the overarching storyline of the Bible. And the scriptures provide the best story. It is God's story of you and for you. He does not put everything into this book that you could possibly ever know about life. He puts something into this book that he needs you to know about who he is, what he has done, what he plans to do. What I wanna do in just the remainder of our time, here's the thing, is that like, I learned a long time ago, like I never ever wanna like try to convince you of things like with just merely human intellect because then you could easily be argued out of it. I don't want to try to strong arm anybody. I certainly don't want to prevent some things that feels like, you know, I'm slam dunking on you. What I do want to do is I just want to uh, uh, invite us to just kind of think and just kind of engage in this. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know that I can trust the Bible or I don't know that I believe it. And I just want to kind of present a few things. Um, That the links to which God would go To get this story into our hands, I would say is nothing short of miraculous. I don't think miraculous is too strong of a word. In fact, I want to present a few things to you. And I just simply want to say this. I I think, I would contend, this is my opinion, that it requires more faith for you to believe that the Bible is just merely a human book than for you to believe that it is a human and a divine book. And so let me just kind of uh, throw out a few facts about the Bible. I'm going to talk faster than you can write. So if you want, you can just kind of take a picture uh, with your uh, phone and go back and kind of look at it later. But the Greek word for Bible is biblios. And it just means book. But the Bible is not a book. It's actually a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years in over a dozen countries on three different continents by over 40 different people. Uh, And it wasn't just one kind of person, meaning like it wasn't just a bunch of college professors and it wasn't just a bunch of fishermen. It was people that had a wide variety of perspectives. So poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen. It wasn't written in coffee shops and offices. It was written in uh, um, caves, ships, homes, palaces, prisons, and deserts. The contents include the literary genres of history, law, poetry, songs, prophecy, sermons, and letters. And the reason why I bring that up is because uh, you would read a letter from somebody differently than you would read poetry. And oftentimes we don't take that into account. And so we read it the same way. And then we sometimes get confused or we misinterpret it. Now, here's the question that I have as I just kind of present all that to you. How do you get that many people over that amount of time from that many places and that many perspectives saying the same thing about the meta narrative, the grand narrative of God's redemptive plan. I've never written a book, but I have written a chapter in a book. And I know how many Zoom calls, text messages, and emails that all of the contributing authors shared with each other to make sure we were all aligned. The authors of scripture didn't have that. Many of them weren't even, they didn't even live during the same time period, and yet uh, they are saying and affirming much of the same things. This is oftentimes uh, looked at as the cross-referencing that's in the Bible. Did you know that there are nearly 64, 
thousand cross-references in the Bible. A cross-reference is when a certain passage of scripture says something that is then referenced in another setting, could be centuries or hundreds of years later in a different setting written by a, another person. And in fact, there's this graph. Somebody took the time to put this together. We've had to kind of smash it to put it on the screen. But you can Google this and look at it if you want. The uh, gray and white kind of graphs at the very bottom represent books of the Bible. So Genesis through Revelation. And when there is something that is mentioned and then it is cross-referenced in another section, they just kind of drew a color line to connect the two. You take nearly all 64,000 cross-references and it creates this image. Now, I'm under no illusion that by presenting that to you, you're going to drop to your knees and say, my Lord and my God. You know, that, that's, not what I, that's not what I think will happen. I just simply want to show that to you and say, if the Bible has not been breathed out by God, then that is an interesting coincidence. And so, um, you know, you might be saying, okay, well, Aaron, you know, that's all interesting and fine and good. Thanks for the art lesson. But, you know, um, times have changed. And, uh, you know, the Bible is an ancient document. And, uh, you know, kind of like, a, you know, an owner's manual from the 1950s. You know, I'm not going to use that to change my, the oil in my modern car. And why in the world would I adapt my modern life to an ancient text? And I'm sure that people have altered it over the centuries. And besides, there's so many interpretations of it anyway. Don't people just use the scripture to make it say whatever they want? That's why we've got like a jillion different, you know, denominations out there. And I would concede that. I would say, unfortunately, that can and does often happen. That's why we have some dark moments in church history. That's why at times people get things Wrong, And this is why I think that Paul urged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he urged him to correctly handle the word of truth, implying there is an incorrect way to handle it. James chapter 3 says, uh, hey, not many of you should aspire to be teachers and preachers because you will be judged more strictly on the day of judgment. Bad news for me. So there are a lot of bad, there's a lot of bad teaching out there. In fact, I invite this of our church. You'd be like the Bereans, that if you hear me teach something, you're not quite sure about it, you need to double check it. Now, now lovingly do that, you know, assume the best, come to me and, hey, could you clarify that? Or I think maybe you got that wrong because um, I'm not inspired. The text is. And I want to correctly handle the word of truth. Now I would say this, just because somebody has mishandled the word of truth in your life, whether that be, you know, a coworker or, you know, Ned Flanders who lives next door or, you know, a preacher on the internet or whatever, that doesn't mean that it isn't the word of truth. Uh, I don't know um, how many of you love Indian food, but I love me some good Indian food. I mean, you give me some, yeah, we got, we got one person right up here, man. It's lunch afterwards. All right. So, so uh, you give me some good chicken tiki masala and some naan bread man, I am going to be content for a really long time. Good, good Indian food. Well, when we were traveling this summer, we were in uh, Western England in a little town we'd never been before. I didn't know the restaurant scene and it's late at night. We didn't have much dinner. I'm super hungry. And so it was about 10 o'clock and I, I told Lindsay, I said, man, I'm really, really hungry and I am craving some Indian food. And she's like, please don't. We're, we're in a hotel room, all right? And uh, I was like, oh man, I'm really hungry. So I opened up Uber Eats and I uh, found a, a restaurant, Indian food restaurant, not far from the hotel. And, uh, you know, the, the reviews were sketchy, right? They were sketchy. And, uh, but I was so hungry that I was like, well, you know, I'm going to roll the dice on this one. It got, it got three stars, you know? And so uh, I went ahead and I ordered some food. 20 minutes later, the dude shows up at the hotel lobby, got my Indian food. I'm so excited. I've run up there, you know, and I, I tear it open inside the hotel room. I took one bite and realized 
this was a bad idea. Like, I, I couldn't even take another bite. Like, I, I packaged the whole thing up and I was like, I got to get rid of it. Can't keep it in the hotel room overnight. So I just kind of, I did one of those things. You know how people like set their like room service food outside their door? I just went down about six doors and set it outside somebody else's door. And I was just like, you know, you know that was their food, no, not mine. All right, so now here's the deal. I am not giving up on Indian food because one restaurant served me, served me poor Indian food. And maybe you were a part of a church or maybe you're part of a movement or a small group in which they mishandled the word of truth. Man, don't give up on the word of God because somebody prepared it or delivered it in a way that was maybe harmful or abusive. Man, you, 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 you discern that. And this is why you say, well, how do you discern it? Well, there's been this whole system of interpretation that has been developed over the centuries. They, they are principles that hold true for interpretation. Let me get nerdy on you again. The term is hermeneutics. And it's this idea that when you come to a passage, passage, there's a set of principles that you employ as you read it so that you can discern the truth of what the passage is saying. Uh, there, there's another word for it. It's called exegesis. And this is the idea when you come to a passage, you, um, you come to it with a set of questions. You, you don't, have you ever been a part of a small group where you read a passage and go, hey, let's go around the room and you just say what the passage means to you. That is not good exegesis. That's how we get bad Indian food, all right? So, so this is the idea where you come to the text and you ask a set of questions. You go, okay, number one, uh, is this written um, uh, in the Old Testament covenant or the New Testament covenant? Is this, uh, what genre is it written in? Because I'm gonna read poetry differently than a letter. Uh, who wrote it? Do we know who wrote it? Um, who were they writing to? What was the setting? What was the time period? What was going on in culture? What was the issue that they were addressing? Here's the biggest one. How does this fit or connect into the meta-narrative? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Once we answer all those questions, we discern as best as we can the meaning of the text. Out of the meaning, we get the application. We make application, we illustrate the application. That's preaching. So it's like every week what we're trying to do, regardless of whether it's a thematic or uh, we're working through a book of the Bible, we're going to exegete the scriptures. Now, oftentimes I'll have people email me, DM me, text me, and they'll say, hey, pastor, you know, uh, can you give me a set of verses about blank, divorce? Can you give me a set of verses about alcohol? Can you, and, I, and please don't hear me correctly. I want you to do that. But oftentimes I'm very cautious about doing that because oftentimes we can cherry pick verses to make the scriptures say what we want it to say. It's called progressive Christianity. It's this idea of like, well, I don't really like what the Bible says, so let me twist the scriptures to make it say what I wanna say and feel justified about how I wanna live. That's, that's mishandling the word of truth. And so uh, in Psalm chapter 33, verse four, it says the word of God holds true, like it holds and we can trust everything he does. So in the remainder of our time together, here's what I wanna do. I just want to present some, it, like if the Bible has not been breathed out by God, then there are some things about it that at the very least are some interesting, miraculous coincidences. And I would even go as far as to say it requires more faith for you to believe that this was just written by flawed human beings than for it to be breathed out by God through human beings. Now, once again, I'm not trying to slam dunk on anybody. I'm just trying to ask you to engage and to be thoughtful about each one of these. So here's just a few, all right? Um, one would be the reliability of the manuscripts of the Bible. 
Now, here's what uh, literature historians will tell you is that when it comes to ancient documents uh, outside of the Bible, let's just take like cultural or secular documents, the more copies of the, uh, more manuscripts of the original given within the shortest period of time, the more reliable or authentic uh, the manuscript. So uh, here's a few examples. Uh, there's a guy named Tacitus, regarded as one of the greatest Roman historians of all time. Uh, we have 31 of his manuscripts of the original written within a thousand years after, after the original. And uh, historians look at that and they go, man, that's pretty legit. Uh, Plato, 210 manuscripts of his writings within 1300 years. Julius Caesar, uh, no one disputes this. 251 manuscripts written within 950 years. But the gold standard, like outside of the Bible, the gold standard, historians uh, look at this and they're like, man, they, 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 they're just like, we're just falling all over ourselves about this, is Homer's Iliad. 1,757 manuscripts within 500 years of the original. But guys, the New Testament has 5,700 manuscripts that have been written within 100 years of the original. You take the other languages outside the Greek, it equals up to 24,000 manuscripts. And it dwarfs any other secular text by far in the world. Well, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He goes, hey, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Jesus right there in that passage, he affirms the durability of the scriptures and then he affirms the authority of the scriptures, even the Old Testament. And he says, God's gonna keep his word. Another thing for you to consider with the Bible would just be archeology span and fulfilled prophecy. You know, it'd be a big risk if this was just merely written by human beings uh, because they weren't just telling stories, they were making prophecies. Like they were prophesying about things that would happen in the future. So really easy way to discredit it would be, well, did those things happen? Well, 300 of those thousand prophecies had to do with Jesus himself. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those 300 prophecies 400 years before he was born, those prophecies were made. So specific details about Jesus. Uh, David actually prophesied that Jesus would be crucified by Roman crucifixion. Get this years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. How would he know that? In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. You know, I uh, went over to the Holy Land earlier this year and, and uh they're still excavating places around the Holy Land that just confirm what the scriptures teach. And in the past, liberal scholars argued there was no such place as a city called Jericho until they found it. And they argued that King David never existed until they found an artifact with his name inscribed on it. And they argued that the exodus from Egypt never took place. And now archeological proof has been discovered that shows that it has. In the late 1800s, there was a famous archaeologist and professor at the University of Edinburgh named William Ramsey. And he was uh, an agnostic at best, likely an atheist. And he said of the scriptures that they are sloppy historically. And he took aim at the book of Acts, which lists a lot of names, places, and dates. And he took aim at that. Luke is the author of Acts. And he said Luke was a sloppy historian. And so to set out to prove his point, he traveled to Asia Minor, which is the context of the book of Acts. 
And when he was there, he was actually confronted with so much archaeological evidence that was overwhelming to him. And he conceded and became a believer just on the archaeology alone. Another thing for us to consider would be scientific observations. And here's what I mean. What we know about the known universe is always changing as we discover new information. That's largely what science is. And so if God is God, then that means that he created the laws that govern that universe. And so by seeking scientific answers, we're seeking to know the creator better. In fact, um, many of the fathers of modern day science as we know it were theists who were seeking to understand creation better. And the Bible affirms some things that we now know about the universe that mankind didn't know at the time the scriptures were being written. Now, here's what I mean. Stay with me. The scientific knowledge that was widely accepted during the days the Bible was being written was false. Yet none of that ended up in the writing of scripture, which if it was just a human document, don't you think it would have? Some of you are like, Aaron, what are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, One widely held belief, scientific belief during the day that the Bible was being written and by a few random YouTubers today, is that the earth was flat. But it wasn't until Copernicus and Galileo, just five, 600 years ago, that we learned otherwise. Here's what the Bible told us 2,600 years ago. God sits above the circle of the earth. That word circle in the Hebrew means sphere or globe. Another scientific, widely held belief during the time the Bible was written was that the earth had to be held up. The Greeks believed it was held up by Atlas. A lot of the Eastern mystics believe that the earth sat on the back of an elephant, which stood on the back of a sea turtle, which sat on the back of a serpent that swam throughout the sea. Makes sense. Uh, The Egyptians, who were brilliant engineers, they believed that the earth had to stand on five pillars. Now, Moses, being the adopted son of Pharaoh, would have been enrolled in Egyptian public schools. So he would have learned all of that in school. And he wrote the first five books of the Bible and none of those beliefs are in the pages of scripture. The oldest book in the Bible, Job 26 says this, God stretches the Northern sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Another scientific belief is that they held in was that they thought that all the stars in the sky that you could see were all the stars that they were. And I said, well, we think that they can be counted. So there was this dude named Hipparchus in 150 BC who counted the stars, all of them. And he came up with 1,022. <laughs> and then 300 years later, 300 years later, a guy named Ptolemy, who's still considered one of the greatest uh, geniuses of astronomy, he counted, he found four more. It took him 300 years to find four more. And he said, no, there's 1,026. But 2,600 years ago in Jeremiah 33, The Bible says this, as the stars of the sky cannot be counted and the sand on the seashore cannot be measured. How'd they know that? Like they had no telescopes, that that NASA didn't exist. How'd they know that? Well, it wasn't man writing it. Man might've been holding the pen, but God (sighs) breathed it out. Another thing I just want you to, to just take into consideration is the durability of the Bible. You ever stop to consider why the Bible has been attacked so venomously if it's not true? Like, don't you just think we would just kind of ignore it? If it's not true, like it would eventually just sort of go away. Like the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. 
No other book has been burned, banned, or beaten down. From Roman emperors to communist leaders to liberal college professors uh, to satanic heavy meddlers. So why are they so threatened by it if it isn't true? My favorite story is of this French dude named Voltaire. And Voltaire predicted that Christianity would be eliminated and that within 100 years of his lifetime, the only Bible that you would be able to find is in a museum, just an ancient forgotten text. And uh, within 50 years of his death in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and used his home to put a printing press where they printed thousands of Bibles. I love that. I love that story. Like, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor, all right? Well, it says this in Isaiah 40, the grass withers and the flowers fade. People come and people go, but the word of our God stands forever. Personally, you, you know, you may not believe this, but personally, I believe the reason why the Bible is attacked and dismissed and disregarded so often, uh, you know, uh, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, but one author just recently said, yeah, it's the best-selling book of all time that's never been read. And oftentimes what we do is we regurgitate just simply what we hear others say. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. That's, you hear that a lot. Well, name one. Most people will be stuck. Oh, I don't know. Because we just regurgitate stuff that we've heard about it. I personally believe that the reason why the Bible is so attacked so often is because it really does contain the words of life from God. And we have an enemy who knows that. And so he will try to do everything that he can to get you to, to, to undermine the reliability of God's word in your life, to try to dismiss it. Now, you know, I'm under no illusion that all the stuff that I've said today is gonna cause you to go, well, I, be, I believe the Bible now. But here's, here's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is to be breathed out by God is because Jesus did. The testimony of Jesus of the scriptures. Do you know that Jesus affirmed the scriptures when they were challenged? He taught and referenced the Old Testament. When he was tempted in the desert, he didn't try to contend with the temptation through his own reasoning. He said, it is written. And then he would quote scripture. And he would oftentimes teach from the, the scripture passages. He would quote from it often. Jesus believed that it was breathed out by God. And Jesus even believed, and this is where a lot of us get tripped up. Jesus believed that it was a partnership of human authors, fallen, broken, sinful, flawed inconsistent human beings holding the pen, but whew, breathed out by God. And that's what trips many of us up because that requires, there's this like sort of this like mysterious nature to that. And many of us, at times myself included, I just like for the Bible to be one or the other, either written by men or written by God. But this whole idea of human authorship and divine, that just seems kind of messy, kind of blows my mind. I would just love it if God would have said, I shot a laser out of heaven and carved the Bible into stone. I'd be like, okay, that's great. You know, it just came directly from God. But see, the plan of redemption from God always involves human beings. And Jesus seemed to not have any problem with it. In fact, there's a little thing that he said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43. I'll close with this. He says, as he's responding to questions about the Messiah, Jesus says, why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, call the Messiah my Lord? Now, it's a really brief thing that he says, but in that little sentence, that little question that he presents, Jesus is affirming human authorship, David, inspired by and through the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's saying. It's the voice of God. Through the voice of David, through the voice of scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Bible is not meant to be read like a reference book. It's not meant to be read like, a, 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 like you're cramming for a test. Certainly not meant to be read like a religious checklist. The Bible is a letter from your father and it desires your formation over time. And so the Bible is okay with us wrestling with it. The Bible is okay with us having conf uh, you know, confusion and, and questions and, and grappling with the text. It's okay, why? Because it's trying to shape you and form you into a different person. And guys, that takes time. Well, how long? I don't know, a lifetime of just coming to the passage. And you don't read the passage to try to get it all figured out. You come to the passage and the passage ends up exposing and changing you. But we don't have the time or the patience for that because we are people of Amazon Prime. Like we want it now. Like just give me like, hey pastor, give me a set of verses for blank so I can check the list and move on with my life. The Bible will not play that game because the Bible is trying to form you into a new person. And it's gonna take lots and lots of reps. This is why I always get a little disheartened, actually not a little, a lot disheartened. When somebody walks in like, hey, you know, pastor, what are you preaching on today? John 3, 16, I already heard that. And just sort of dismissive about it. And a lot of well-seasoned Christians do that. Guys, the Bible is living and active. I don't care how well you know the passage, the spirit of God is breathing into that text. Why? To form you into a new person to shape you and it requires lots and lots of reps. I don't care if you get up every day, you just read one verse and you say, God, please speak through that verse. Knock off the rough edges of my life. God, would you please shape me more and more into your image? God, I give you the time and the space to do that. Guys, guys, please don't give up. Please don't give up when the Bible is perplexing, when the Bible is confusing when friends and family are losing heart, when people are walking away from it, when they say things that cause you to maybe um, second guess your trust in it, please don't give up because the Bible is meant to form you into a new person. Um, I've told you earlier in the summer that I've recently picked back up the game of golf because apparently I need more misery in my life. And uh, I've been working with a, a golf pro. I've had four or five lessons and man, he's been great. You know, he's been super patient and been phenomenal, but, but, you know, I'll get to the tee boxes and, you know, this is one of those things where speaking of deconstruction, I had a pretty good swing until I started taking lessons. And then my swing started progressively getting worse and worse. And it was really, really frustrating. And I would be doing what he told me to do, but I, I would dribble the ball right off the tee or I'd slice it way off to the right. I'm so frustrated. And he would just stay really, really calm, really, really, I mean, it was a horrible shot. He should be making fun of me. But instead he looks at me and he's like, Hey man, it's all right. We'll get you there, keep swinging. I just wanna punch him so bad. Like I just wanna just beat him with that brand new driver of mine. And, and uh, but he's right. It's like, hey man, just be patient. Just keep swinging. We'll get you there. It's gonna take a lot of reps. Can I, guys, can I just say the same thing to you? Man, don't give up. Like just keep swinging. You just keep coming to the passage. You just keep coming to the text. You say, God speak, I believe, I believe. It, it may take a step of faith. It may take a, a big giant jump of faith for some of you. And there's a mysterious nature to this, but you're like, God, I believe that this has been breathed out and that through it, I know who you are and who I am and what's gone wrong and what you've done to make things right and what you will one day do to restore all things. Guys, you keep swinging, you keep swinging. 
because through the Holy Spirit, we'll get you there. We'll get you there. Father, we come to you right now. And as we start this uh, series that time's going to be challenging, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but God, I'm not, I'm not worried. I'm not fearful. Like we need to talk about these things. And, and we know that um, your word speaks very thoughtfully and deeply to these things that are real life right in front of us. And so God, I just pray that you would go out in front of us, that you would use this series to um, uh, gird up our faith, to give us greater confidence. Maybe if there's somebody who's maybe in the processes of thinking about abandoning the faith and maybe they would rethink that. And maybe there's some people that like, man, you know, I just had a really horrible church experience or bad experience with Christians. I didn't know it was like this that they might be come to know and have an encounter with the living God. God, please speak. We're listening. In Jesus' name.